Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. How might one live as an outsider in another nation? How do chaplains serve in communities? Why are hymnals essential? January 24 through 30, 2021 was National Lutheran Schools Week in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Wittenberg Academy had the privilege of hosting our second annual National Lutheran Schools Week guest speaker series. During that time, Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart, Reverend Dr. Carl Fakencher, Mrs. Holly James, Reverend Larry Bean, and Deaconess Sandra Ryan did an excellent job teaching us. Today, we have the privilege of hearing excerpts from Mrs. James, Pastor Bean, and Deaconess Ryan. Welcome to Life in Jerusalem, an outsider's view. You're probably no longer wondering who this outsider is. That would be me, as Mrs. Benson already explained a little bit, and she did a great job. She nailed my history here, growing up in Nebraska and then making my way to a small college in Hillsdale, Michigan. And then after I graduated from this college in Hillsdale, Michigan, I got married to my husband, Mr. James, and we moved together to all the way down here to Roswell, New Mexico. And then in August of 2019, so just over a year and a half ago, we moved to Jerusalem over here on this side of the Mediterranean. So nothing like Nebraska or Michigan, maybe a little like uh, New Mexico, kind of hot and dry most of the time. Here, it sounds really nice and simple. We just packed our bags and hopped on a plane, but it wasn't quite that easy. We had to apply for student visas and things like that. And we got our first lesson in Israeli culture we were warned by some friends who had visited before that when you arrive in Israel, you should plan on coming any other day but Friday afternoon or Saturday because all the public transportation closes down Friday afternoon and stays closed all through Saturday because they still observe Shabbat in Israel. They take a full Sabbath rest and there's no public transportation. So we, I think we made it here on a Thursday, just before Shabbat started. Flying Chicago, had a nice long layover in Barcelona, Spain, and finally made it to the one airport here in Tel Aviv. And then from there, we took a train and made it to Jerusalem. You might be wondering how big of a place this is. The United States is a very large country. Uh, Israel would fit very nicely in to New England, specifically New Jersey. It's roughly the same size and about the same population density, meaning they have similar populations to one another. New Jersey has about 8.8 .8 million people. And here in all of Israel, there are around 9.3 million people living here, depending on which territories you actually count as being a part of Israel. It's a pretty diverse place, but predominantly uh, Jewish, which is a little misleading. There are Jews from all over the world, some coming from Spain, some who were born and raised here in Israel, some coming from North Africa. 
But then we also have Arab people and a minority of other people who are neither Jewish nor Arab. But even to add to that mix, make it a little more chaotic, if you will, we also have a variety of religions here, all living on top of one another. Once again, mostly Jewish people practicing Judaism, but also uh, largely represented is Islam, with a very small Christian population here. And then Druze is a local sort of mystic type religion. They sort of borrow from other religions and if they like it, they see it. So they take parts of Islam and parts of Christianity and parts of Judaism to come up with this religion called Druze. And I'm not sure what exactly falls under the other, which is probably why they just have it labeled as other here. And because there are so many different types of people practicing so many different religions, they have lots of languages here. Modern Hebrew is the official language of this place. It kind of looks like this. This is Ivrit, which is the word Hebrew in Hebrew. Um, Arabic is a recognized language. Uh, so many of the street signs will have Arabic on them as well. You can get a sampling of Arabic here. And then unofficial languages, but common to see, include Russian, English, Amharic, which is from Ethiopia, French, and Spanish. Uh, a lot of people around here like to joke that if you plan on living here full time, you don't need to learn Hebrew, but you should plan on learning six other languages in order to make it by. <laughs> so if you plan on living here full term, you should probably learn Hebrew. <laughs> we don't use dollars here. We use what's called the new Israeli shekel. And so you don't see dollar signs anywhere. You see this interesting little symbol here, though sometimes people will just abbreviate it NIS instead. And of course, we use the metric system. So instead of miles, we have kilometers. Uh, it was very shocking to go to the store and they didn't have any gallons of milk available. They just had a liter of milk, which is very small compared to a gallon. And then we measure things in centimeters because there's so many different kind of cultures here. Both the, the country of Israel as well as the state of Palestine claim Jerusalem as their capital city. Uh, so if you've ever seen two children fighting over a toy, you can probably picture how well it doesn't actually work to share a whole city between two countries. Uh, so no wonder things get kind of tense here. Parts of Jerusalem are viewed by the United Nations as Israeli-occupied territory. And most people will, re will refer to this as West and East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem is the part that's considered occupied territory. West Jerusalem is considered to be a part of Israel, actually. East Jerusalem is called the West Bank, just to make things even more confusing for you. East Jerusalem is in the West Bank, meaning the United Nations doesn't think it's actually a part of Israel. They think it's a part of Palestine. The part here that's called West Jerusalem is considered part of Israel. And then you have this no man's land kind of running along here. And then this is what's called the old city of Jerusalem. And it's primarily in this East Jerusalem or this occupied territory. 
So we don't have to just think of Jerusalem as east and west. There are many, many neighborhoods that each have their own interesting and exciting characteristics. And we'll talk about just a couple of those neighborhoods here in a little bit. And as I've mentioned, there's the old city of Jerusalem, which is this little black box here. And then all the rest of this, you can think of as the new city of Jerusalem. So another way to think of that is inside the walls is the old city, outside is the new city. Now these walls have shifted over time and the walls of Jerusalem aren't in the same place as they are in the Old Testament or even in the time of Jesus. The current walls were finished in 1541. This is during the Ottoman Empire by Sultan Suleiman I. So considering the age of everything else around here, these walls, they're pretty old, but they're not the oldest thing that's here. Not until 1541. Let's talk about some of these neighborhoods, just the ones that I know really well because I've actually lived in these neighborhoods. The name of this one is called Nachlaot, and it means like little homesteads. So this is in the new city of Jerusalem. It's outside the walls, and they were built to kind of mimic as if you were still living with it inside the walls, and they were built to have these, all these structures have center courtyards in them. So there's a nice safe garden um, surrounded by the walls of your house then. The, the house that I lived in didn't have a nice garden quite like that, but it was within this big neighborhood, a really popular neighborhood with uh, young Jewish people who have made Aliyah, meaning they've immigrated to Israel to um, live there and become citizens of Israel. So it's, it's predominantly Jewish and you can see the uh, Israeli flag proudly displayed outside this house here. Very narrow streets. Um, with some interesting parking of cars just kind of stuffed in these old little windy alleyways. Another big highlight of this neighborhood is this famous outdoor market called the Mahane Yehuda Market. And you can see all sorts of people in the marketplace. You have traditionally dressed Haredi or ultra-Orthodox men here, fully robed with their hats and uh, nice big full beards. There's a tourist just over here in his uh, striped polo and jeans and everyone in between. And you can see how packed it is during the day. All of these folks just making their way through the market to do their shopping and to smell all the different spices, maybe grab a cup of coffee or something. So this is the Mahen Yehuda market, very popular in Nachlaot. I actually used to do all of my grocery shopping here. It would get pretty hectic sometimes. And uh, many of the vendors don't speak a whole lot of English. So I had to learn my numbers in Hebrew very quickly to know if, how much I owed or if I wanted to purchase something or not. So some very good trial by fire experience happening in this market. <laughs> the other neighborhood that I know really well is the neighborhood where I currently live. And this is a particularly interesting neighborhood. It's in what's considered being no man's land back on that other map. It's right in between West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, right along that line. Because it's right along that line, it has both a Hebrew and an Arabic name. The uh, Hebrew name is Morasha, and the Arabic name is Musrara. 
And everybody nowadays just calls it Musrara. Even the Hebrew speakers, they just call it Musrara. It's a little more Arabic in style overall. You can see the fancy, um, this is just outside someone's house, all of these interesting and intricately decorated tiles on the ground here. And uh, once again, narrow streets and alleyways. This is actually the outside of my apartment building. So you're getting to know me very well today. Uh, if you go up the stairs and to the left, you'll find this kitchen where I'm sitting. So <laughs> welcome. This is Musrara. And then if you want to see this, visualize it on a map. Over here to the left, you have the uh, neighborhood of Naklaot. This is where that outdoor market is right along in here. I used to live down in this area. And now I live over here in Musrara. So lots of neighborhoods in between. All of these big gray names are names of separate neighborhoods. So neighborhoods are a, an important thing in this area. People really uh, take pride in where they live and neighborhoods develop their own sorts of cultures. Um, Musrara is not nearly as religious as uh, Nachlaot was. So on um, Saturdays on Shabbat, uh, you wouldn't hear any cars driving by in Nachlaot. People would be in their homes with their families, having a nice Sabbath rest. Whereas over here in Musrara, uh, we're just a short walk away from an Arab market. It's usually still pretty busy on Shabbat and uh, just a different character here. To help you visualize, uh, these are the walls of the old city. I kind of highlighted them for you. So I live very close to the actual walls that were built in 1541. And speaking of the old city, let's focus in on that just a little bit. That's what most people want to learn about when they're learning about Jerusalem. Uh, that's where many of the famous sites we hear about in the Bible take place. The old city has four neighborhoods within it. And we call these the four quarters. There's the Muslim quarter, the Christian quarter, the Jewish quarter, and the Armenian quarter. They're not equal quarters, as you'll see in this map. The Muslim quarter is definitely the largest over here. And the Muslims also have control over this uh, nice rectangle here. This is what we call Temple Mount. So this is where Solomon built his temple. It was on this, this piece of land right here. Uh, the Christian quarters over here to the west of the Muslim quarter. The Armenian quarter is very small. And then the Jewish quarter has access to a little bit of the Temple Mount. Many Jews will go and pray along this little wall here, especially on Shabbat. So those are the four quarters of the old city. And here's a sampling of the walls that surround the old city. This is the gate that I live closest to. This is Damascus Gate. Uh, it's probably the most impressive looking one. Not all of them are this elaborately decorated, but this is the Damascus Gate. You can see people walking in and out. Once again, all sorts of people here. You can kind of pick out the tourists because they're taking photos of one another. 
um, versus the people who are just heading in to do their shopping or maybe to their houses. And then I like this picture over here because it's a, such a stark contrast between the old city walls and then the cars just driving around, <laughs> people on their way going to work. You can see some of the new city over here with their skyscrapers versus this really old minaret, this tower, um, just the stark contrast here. If you go inside the walls, uh, this photo right here on the left was taken from what's called King David's Tower in the Christian Quarter. And we're out overlooking, you can see that this is the Muslim Quarter over here. And in the background, that's actually the Mount of Olives. So it was a, we were lucky the day we went, it was beautiful weather, a nice clear day, and you can spot the golden dome of the Dome of the Rock. So Jerusalem is kind of golden, uh, but not like how we sing in the hymn, uh, <laughs> but a pretty view anyway. You are able to access the outside of this Temple Mount, even though it's in the Muslim quarter. You have to go through a lot of screening to get in. Uh, if you have anything uh, written in Hebrew, they ask you to leave it outside the Temple Mount because they, the Muslims don't want the Jews praying on Temple Mount. They don't want the Christians praying there either, but they're more concerned about the Jews trying to pray there. So if you brought a textbook with you that has Hebrew on it, or maybe a necklace that has something, they'll ask you to take it off, leave it behind in order to access this place. Um, there is a mosque on the Temple Mount, but this is not a picture of the mosque. The mosque has a really ugly, just a black dome. It's not exciting at all. Um, and then this here is more like a monument uh, surrounding what they say is the original bedrock where uh, Abraham sacrificed Isaac. The Muslims say that Abraham attempted to sacrifice his son Ishmael, but we as Christians know that's not true. We know that it's Isaac, not Ishmael. So interesting how different religions twist things and just don't get it quite right. And then if you leave the nice Tower of David and sort of wander through the streets, this is the view that you'll have. It's a giant market the whole way through, people selling things, um, some interesting uh, elephant pants over here. They're very popular among the tourists. Um, there are figurines, little crosses. That's how you know that you're in the Christian quarter. Um, all sorts of Christian related things. There's a nice cross back here. And eventually, you can wind your way through to this nice building. And this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, it's very fancy in some parts, but then in other parts, it looks like it's just kind of in shambles. And that's kind of how all of Jerusalem works. You'll have something really big and fancy and nice next to something that's, you, know, you wish you could just crop it out of your photo. <laughs> and uh, parts of the Holy Sepulchre are kind of like that. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is uh, where people, some Christians say, uh, where Golgotha, uh, where, where Christ was crucified, is located. And they also say that just, just a few meters from that is the rock cut or the garden tomb where Jesus was buried. 
And as a visitor, you can go through and you can walk up these stairs to a little chapel that's built around this spot where they say is Golgotha. And you'll find many Christians praying there, lighting candles, things like that. You can exit that little chapel and wind your way through many others. It's a confusing maze of chapels, one chapel after another, until you come to a covered area where you have to stand in line for a couple of hours to go down to where they say this tomb is. Uh, I did not stand in that two-hour line that day, sadly, because um, I figured I live here, I'll have time to come back another day. Uh, so I actually haven't scoped out this particular rock-cut tomb. I'm assuming it's empty. Uh, I trust God's word that Christ has indeed risen, so that's a good thing. Um, but the reason there are so many little chapels here is because there are so many different churches church bodies and organizations that all share this space. You have Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Armenian Apostolic, Coptic Orthodox, Syriac, Syriac Orthodox, and Ethiopian Orthodox Christians. Uh, they all have different languages, different liturgies, and uh, they share the space as best they can. And that means there's pretty much a service going on in some language, in some rite, uh, at any time of the day. You'll walk through and you'll smell incense from one corner and hear chanting from another. It's a very interesting experience. Um, this photo here is the entrance to the church itself. So you'd walk in here from the right and then you'd see this stone here. Uh, some Christian traditions claim that this is the stone where the women prepared the body of Christ for burial. Uh, so many people will uh, pause and reflect at this stone, uh, kind of an interesting thing to see. It, at times, it's almost a little unnerving uh, just how, how moved people get over this particular stone. And I think it's important to, to pause and realize that we don't know for a fact if this is actually the stone or not. It's just kind of been handed down as tradition. And it's more important to have that sort of respect and reverence for God's word and every single Sunday when you go to church and you receive Christ's body and blood that's where you actually see Jesus not here on this empty stone <laughs> but maybe for those of you who've been to Israel or have heard about Israel uh, you might have heard of a place called the garden tomb so the church of the holy sepulcher is inside the current walls of the city the walls have shifted uh, so at the time of Jesus, this, this place would have been outside of the walls still. Uh, this is definitely outside the walls. It was back then, and it is still today. And this is a site that started operating in the 1840s, I believe. And some people saw this rock here, and they thought they saw a skull in it. They're like, wow, this reminds me of a skull. Maybe you can squint a little to to see some eyes there. Um, they thought this is Golgotha because it looks like a face, um, <laughs> which interestingly, it's uh, just around the other side of this rock, there's a bus stop. Uh, so it's very loud and noisy here. But they thought this is Golgotha. And just down the street from there, they found a rock cut tomb with a, a stone that could be rolled. Uh, so like, oh, this is actually the garden tomb, not the other place. 
So uh, I guess these people also believe that here they are standing in line to try to enter this empty tomb as well. The day that I actually went to this place, uh, there wasn't a line, thankfully. So I did get to go in. This tomb is empty for sure. I can say that uh, with certainty, but uh, <laughs> kind of an interesting place. So the garden tomb, if you want to picture this on a map, this is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is here. And the garden tomb is over in this area where it's nice and green. So two different locations here. Kind of moving from inside this space, the holy city, we've, we've been uh, inside the walls. We started at the Tower of David here, went over to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and we saw a temple mount sort of from a distance. Uh, now I'd like to take us outside the walls again and talk about this area along here to the uh, south and east of the old city walls. Uh, as you can see, it's a valley uh, quite a distance from the top of here down to the bottom of the valley. This is called the Kidron Valley, and it is famous for its many, many tombs and graves. And uh, you can see some of them over here. There are some very small graves, but then there are some very large and impressive tombs, monumental tombs here. They call those nefeshes. Uh, nefesh would be the singular. And a nefesh doesn't actually hold a body. Instead, it's just supposed to be like a statue to let you know that, hey, near this place, there's a grave somewhere. Um, so a very common burial, burial practice around these parts. If you look down in the bottom of this picture, there's a little bitty camel. So we can zoom in on that and actually see someone riding a camel here. Um, <laughs> kind of fun. There's also a, a car just right there. Um, I don't think the car made it into the picture. I cropped it out. But uh, once again, just the the juxtaposition of the old and the new just smashed in there together. Uh, I didn't get to ride the camel that day, but maybe one day I'll get to ride a camel here. <laughs> and uh, one of the most famous monumental tombs is, is called Absalom's tomb. This isn't actually Absalom's tomb. Absalom was the son of King David, but this tomb has been determined by archaeologists based off of its style and some of the inscriptions that were found inside of it uh, to be from the second temple period. So much later, uh, a long ways after King David. But that doesn't stop the local Jewish population from using Absalom's tomb as a teaching moment. And it's pretty common for fathers to bring their unruly sons to this location. And they will stand there and lecture their sons about Absalom and about the need to obey their fathers. And then at the end of the lesson, the son is instructed to pick up a rock and throw it at Absalom's tomb. So there are all sorts of pebbles and rocks along the base of this really fancy tomb.
Thank you, Mrs. Benson. Uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be here with all of you. I'm going to talk a little bit about chaplaincy in, in general uh, and, and about being a chaplain in the Civil Air Patrol. But I want to talk to you before I actually get into all of that. I want to talk about the Civil Air Patrol in general because a lot of people don't know what it is. If you are between the ages of 12 and 120, uh, you are eligible to be a member of the Civil Air Patrol. It is the official auxiliary to the United States Air Force. And uh, we work in conjunction with the Air Force. Um, when we go on live missions, uh, basically what happens is if there's any search and rescue type missions that the Air Force needs to do within the country, uh, about 80, 80 to 90 percent of the time, they call the Civil Air Patrol, which are, we are uh, volunteer, we're civilian volunteers. and. Uh, uh, so we we are the ones that go and search for people, uh, search for downed airplanes. Um, and our members, like I said, are uh, ages 12 and up. So even our cadet members who are between the ages of 12 and 20 um, are involved in our missions. Uh, they train with us. They learn how to fly the airplanes. They learn how to do uh, ground team radio communications. It's really, um, it's it's really like if you think of like scouting, it's like scouting cubed. Uh, it's 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 like um, uh, really extraordinary opportunities for young people to learn leadership, to learn search and rescue skills, to learn communication skills. And it's also really great for adults too, um, because we have all, all sorts of career paths and coursework you can do. Um, you can learn all sorts of skills that will apply to your civilian life as well. And so it, you also have, it's like having the, all the benefits of the military without, uh, you know, being shipped off somewhere without being under orders to, uh, to be deployed overseas or something like that. That doesn't happen. We're civilian volunteers and we're non-combatants. So I wanna tell you a little bit about the Civil Air Patrol first. Uh, like I said, um, it's, it's, there's some paradoxes with the Civil Air Patrol because we're the Air Force Auxiliary, but we're actually older than the Air Force. Um, we were officially established on December 1st, 1941. Now, some of you who study your history know what happened on December 7th, 1941, less than a week later. Does anybody know? That was when Pearl Harbor was bombed by the Japanese and it brought the United States into World War II. So what happened was the Civil Air Patrol was really just a bunch of private aviators because back in those days, Ordinary people, you know, you had to be kind of wealthy, I guess, but not, you, you didn't have to be super rich, but a lot of people would buy airplanes and fly them. So you could buy your own airplane and hangar it. And what the um, Air Force realized is, hey, we can, you know, work with these private citizens who own airplanes, they can help us for search and rescue. So they started the Civil Air Patrol. Well, then during World War II, uh, believe it or not, the Germans were floating submarines near the United States coasts, and they would occasionally turn up. So the Civil Air Patrol would patrol the, um, uh, the coastlines, and when they would see a U-boat, which is a submarine, they would notify the military. Well, the problem was the U-boat uh, captains would see the little yellow uh, Civil Air Patrol planes, or just little airplanes. They'd see the airplanes, and then they would 
go under the water. So they started letting some Civil Air Patrol pilots have handheld bombs. They had these little bombs. They'd literally drop them out of the window and drop bombs on the U-boats. They actually sank two of them during the war. And basically, because of the Civil Air Patrol, um, the Germans gave up on sending U-boats to the U.S. coast. So after the war, we became strictly non-combatant. Um, during the war, we started bringing in young people, like I said, cadets from the age, age 12 and up to train. And um, so um, the, the mission of the Civil Air Patrol did change after World War II. We became really about um, civil defense at home. So we train a lot like in emergency services. We learn how to use radios. We learn how to do um, uh, first aid. We, we do search and rescue. We look for downed airplanes. We do all this kind of stuff. We train and train and train uh, to do this. But we also developed uh, a curriculum of aerospace education. So we go into schools, we go, um, you know, um, in, we teach adults too about the principles of aviation and aerospace, uh, how airplanes work, how rockets work. But our, the real strength, I think, of our program is our cadet program, uh, because like I said, we bring in 12-year-olds, uh, boys and girls, um, and we teach them you know, all kinds of leadership skills. We do model rocketry. We do model airplane flying. Uh, they study, you know, they learn how to fly an airplane. So basically, if, if you're 12 years old and you join the Civil Air Patrol, one of the first things that we do is we get you up in the air with a pilot and turn the controls over to you and let you fly the plane. I mean, how cool is that? Talk about developing confidence. You know, where the chaplaincy comes in, we also really, really develop character. We want our cadets to be men and women of integrity. We want them to be honest. We want them to pursue excellence. And, uh, and so we have a whole curriculum that the chaplains teach um, to, I mean, you know, we think about it. Your, your average uh, 12 to 20 year old um, is uh, not generally considered a first responder, not generally called upon to go out and save lives, you know. So we, we want to make sure that you, you're well-trained and you are emotionally and spiritually and psychologically up for the task. Now, we don't put cadets in any kind of danger. Like if there was a plane crash and uh, that sort of thing, we wouldn't bring them in where they would might encounter bodies or anything like that. Um, but our cadets are really adept at, at what they do. Um, they're very impressive young men and women. Um, so uh, another thing I did want to point out for our teachers, this is a program that they have called the Aerospace Education Member, AEM. And, and please contact me, whether you're a young person, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a parent, if you want more information, uh, just shoot me an email and I will uh, get more information to you. But if you're a teacher, anywhere, not, not just in the United States, but this worked for um, a, call, a friend of mine who was teaching in Belize for a couple of years in Central America, but he's an American citizen. Um, if you're a teacher, you can join Civil Air Patrol as a special AEM member. That means, you know, no uniforms, no attendance at meetings and all of that. It's, there's really no obligation. You pay $35 for a lifetime membership 
And then every year they'll send you, as you need them, they'll send you these kits, uh, STEM kits, with all the curriculums, with the textbooks, with all of the uh, all of the materials. There's a STEM kit for model rocketry. There's a STEM kit for a model air. There's a couple for model airplanes, for drones, for uh, electronic circuits, for um, uh, robotics. Uh, they're really high quality stuff. Microscope, telescope. Uh, it's all it's all free. It's all there for teachers to use in their classrooms. They'll send you as many as you need. Uh, and homeschool parents are eligible for this too. And another benefit of being an AEM member for you teachers and parents and homeschool parents, um, if you join as an AEM member, they'll give you an orientation ride in the Cessna. So in other words, you get to go up with a pilot and take the controls of the plane if you want to. Maybe you don't want to do that, but it is really cool. Uh, we don't even, I'm a regular member of the Civil Air Patrol and we don't even get to do that. So there are lots and lots of opportunities for students and for teachers in uh, CAP. Every year, there are a couple hundred um, lives that are saved by uh, CAP volunteers all over the country. We are the, we have the largest fleet of single engine airplanes in the world. And our chaplain corps is the largest volunteer chaplain corps in the world too. As a chaplain, I could under certain circumstances, if I volunteered to do so, I could volunteer as an Air Force chaplain. Um, if, uh, if the need arose, uh, it is one of the rare situations where a Civil Air Patrol member can go right into uh, Air Force service um, in, in a, it's, it's a limited thing and it's a voluntary uh, thing. And it, it would only be um, in the United States. They don't send any Civil Air Patrol volunteers outside of the country. Okay, as far as a chaplain, um, the, the, again, it's kind of weird because we're, I'm a civilian, but I had to go through the Missouri Synod's um, Ministry to the Armed Forces to get endorsement to become a military chaplain. Even though I'm not a military chaplain, I am a military chaplain. So uh, how, do, how does that work? It's kind of weird. I'm a civilian, but I'm a military chaplain, but I don't serve the military, I serve the auxiliary. <laughs> but um, basically to be a chaplain in the Civil Air Patrol, and I, I wanna encourage um, if, if any of you all know, uh, you know, if you're, you're pastors or if you're related to pastors or um, let them know this is an, uh, a wonderful opportunity to serve and uh, it's a great extension of your ministry and they can contact me if they want more information. But um, the, our requirements are really the same as the Air Force with the exception we don't have to we don't have to worry about the age limitation and we don't have to worry about the um, physical fitness uh, uh, regulations. So like if you wanted to become a military chaplain in the Air Force, I think you have to be, I think the maximum age is like 45 or something like that, or 40. So if you're older like me, I'm I'm about to turn 58, and you can see I have some white hair here. I, I would not be able to join the Air Force. Um, and then also, um, there's a physical fitness component as well. So if someone is overweight or has diabetes or has a you know a, a, a handicap of some sort. 
you're welcome to join Civil Air Patrol. You can serve. We had pilots in World War II who were either too short or too fat or, you know, whatever, and they weren't eligible to become pilots in the military, but they joined Civil Air Patrol and they became pilots for Civil Air Patrol. Um, you know, as long as you're able to, you know, carry out the mission with your particular handicap, you can serve. To become a Civil Air Patrol chaplain, they, you have to be a pastor for at least five years. You have to, if you have a, um, an MDiv degree, which is a master's degree from the seminary, you go in as a captain, which is what this insignia is, as a captain. I've got a little bit more work to do, and my next rank will be major, but I've got, uh, I probably have about a year's worth of work. They, they do make you earn these promotions. They don't give them away. You have to work very hard and take tests and uh, take coursework and study, and we're not paid to do it either, so it's all volunteer work. Um, now, um, in the military, the chaplaincy does outstanding work. Um, as I, I know a lot of my colleagues in the ministry are military chaplains, and what they do is they provide spiritual care for our military personnel. And military chaplains are all over the world, and they are actually members of the military. They serve, uh, their, their call, their pastoral call is actually to the United States military, and they are deployed with the troops, and they go to combat areas, um, and even though Chaplains are non-combatants. Do you know what that means? A non-combatant means we don't fight, we don't carry arms. Um, it's against international law for a chaplain to carry arms or for a chaplain to be shot at. So uh, we're like uh, medics are in the same category. Doctors are not permitted to carry arms and they're not, um, they're not supposed to be shot at. So um, the military chaplaincy is very important because a lot of times our military personnel are deprived of spiritual life, of services, of clergy for a long time. For Missouri Synod Lutherans, this is very hard because <clears throat> if you don't have a Missouri Synod Lutheran chaplain who comes to visit you, you can't get communion. So you, you know, that you have to maybe just go to sort of general Protestant religious services, but uh, I know one of my classmates was saying what a blessing it was. He was in the army, and he would go months without taking communion, and once in a while a Missouri Synod chaplain would come, and it was it was wonderful because then they could, uh, the Missouri Synod people could take communion. Um, so, uh, in, in the Civil Air Patrol, it's a little different because we're not deployed all over the world. But nevertheless, um, in the day and age that we live in, you know, a lot of people don't have any church. Being a chaplain, I serve as a chaplain in our fire company too, our local fire department, and most of them are Christians. Um, most of them are either Lutherans or Roman Catholics, and so I can, you know, pray with them and give them pastoral care. Um, in in um, <clears throat> in Civil Air Patrol, you are more likely to run into non-Christians or people of another faith tradition, like a Muslim or a Jewish. I have a Jewish member of our squadron, and so <clears throat> if we were on a live mission and we ran into an emergency, like um, if somebody got hurt. Uh, or somebody was in dire uh, circumstances and needed uh, a clergy, you know, clergy for their religion. It would be my job as chaplain, like my Jewish member, I would provide him 
with a Jewish rabbi. Um, I might be able to pray with him as insofar as my conscience would allow and insofar as his conscience would allow. Um, but uh, in, in a, a, a chaplain's job is to provide for the needs of the people under his chaplain care. And if that means if you have a Muslim, that means you find them an imam. If it means it's a Buddhist, then you find them a Buddhist priest. It, you know, and it, it may be kind of difficult, but you do what you can. For Christian people, um, you know, it's a little easier to minister to because we all believe in Jesus and we all believe in the Trinity and all of that. So praying, uh, there's no problem with, uh, with praying for and with other Christian people. So um, <clears throat> we, we, the, the Civil Air Patrol is divided into, the, there's the whole country, of course, and then each state has its own sub-organization called a wing, and the wing is commanded by a colonel. Um, and then each local unit is called uh, a squadron. <clears throat> so this, mi this mirrors the military's, uh, uh, the Air Force's structure. But the squadron has a meeting every uh, every week. So, you know, this is really great for our young people because they get together with their friends every week and and learn new stuff every week. And if they come every week, they really, really become part of the squadron. So the chaplain, we begin our uh, meetings with prayer. So it's interesting because even though we are a sort of government organization, we begin with prayer. And if the squadron doesn't have a chaplain, then somebody volunteers to lead the prayers. So my squadron is blessed with two chaplains. So uh, one of us is usually there for a meeting. So we begin the meeting with prayer. We also remember we're part of the total force of the U.S. Air Force. Uh, so we uh, we do f follow military protocol. So we have an opening ceremony with the presentation of the colors, which is, means that the cadets march the flags out front. We say the pledge, we, uh, we salute the flag, um, we stand at attention for our commanders, they make announcements and so forth. But really before anything happens is the chaplain gives a prayer. And that's really, really good uh, because it does set the tone that um, we serve our country, but we also serve God. Um, then at the end of the meeting, we also close with prayers. Being a chaplain is a little different than being a pastor, though, uh, because like I say, you're, you're not dealing with people that all have the same beliefs. And some of the, some of the people really don't have any uh, beliefs at all. Uh, and yet, they may need uh, they may need some care, especially young people. You know, it's an opportunity. Young people go through a lot of stress. They go through a lot of difficulties in their lives. Their parents may have some uh, struggles with them, and they will call on the chaplain to you know sit down and have a talk with uh, with the young person or with parents. Um, sometimes we're able to smooth out difficulties in family life. We're able to uh, calm people down when they're upset. We're able to, um, you know, and, and like I said, if they're Christians, we can certainly use the word of God uh, to do that. So it's a, it is a great opportunity to serve in God's kingdom um, for, for pastors to sort of extend their reach. 
we don't uh, proselytize, if you know what that word means. Proselytize means to, to do evangelism. Like, I don't go to my squadron saying, well, now this, uh, this guy over here is a Baptist, and I'm going to try to make a Lutheran out of him. Uh, we don't do that. That's not our job. That's not our vocation. You know, uh, my vocation as chaplain is to serve the needs of, uh, of the people there, of their spiritual needs. Now, having said that, you know, the, the chaplaincy is an opportunity for, uh, for people to come into contact with a pastor and with the Word of God. And sometimes people do um, come to faith. And, the, and the, so the chaplain, by being there, can, be, uh, can, can provide that opportunity for, uh, for drawing someone into the faith. Uh, and that's certainly uh, something that is permitted. It, and that's the same with a military chaplain. You know, he's not there to sort of convert people to Lutheranism, but some people are looking, they're seeking, they're, the Holy Spirit is drawing them uh, to the faith. And so this is an opportunity for pastors to be able to serve. So we serve in, in a lot of different kinds of capacities. Um, sometimes we're just, you know, um, uh, on a mission, sometimes we just walk around and say, hey, how you doing? How's everybody doing? Are you, you all okay? You know, because uh, a, a, a mission or even a training mission, we do a lot of training. We do search and rescue ex exercises. And, you know, tempers can flare. You, you know, people, uh, you know, you're, you're under a time constraint and you're trying to locate uh, a person, you know, even if it's just an exercise, you know, people take this very seriously. And so sometimes the chaplain is there to calm people down a little bit uh, or to maybe, you know, make a joke and lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, sometimes just bring people water, bring someone a cup of coffee, bring them a sandwich. Um, you know, it's, it's, it really is an opportunity to serve the way Jesus told us, you know, when remember before the Lord's Supper, he washed the disciples' feet, which was the lowly servant's job. And so um, a chaplain does all of those things. A lot of times he's totally not noticed. He's behind the scenes. Um, but his job is very, very important because even if you're a chaplain, you're representing Jesus. And that's, that is a very, very important job. further ado, I will hand it over to Deaconess Ryan. Thank you, Mrs. Benson. It's great to see all of your faces. I'm starting to get to know these faces since I've seen them every day this week. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, when in our music God is glorified and adoration leaves no room for pride, it is as though the whole creation cried, Alleluia. So has the church in liturgy and song, in faith and love, through centuries of wrong, borne witness to the truth in every tongue. Alleluia. Amen. All right. So we get to talk about music and mission work and um, how hymnals are an essential service. I have two parts to my talk with you. One part is about God's hand in our lives, how God is all of our lives. And the second part is about hills, why they are essential, why we use them in the mission field and why we use them at home, and um, how our lives are liturgical. 
All right. So right now we live in COVID times. We've got this pandemic going on. And um, if you have heard any news reports or heard adults talking, you might have heard the phrase essential services. There's lots of talk about essential services. And that's like the fad phrase right now. What is essential? And one of the arguments that they talk about on the news is why are big chain stores allowed to stay open, but little locally owned restaurants are not? And that's a problem. Why we're even saying that we're essential. Okay, usually when we say something is, is essential, we say it's essential for something for some reason. For example, proper gear is essential for completing this mission. Normally, almost everyone would say their work is essential for some reason, but because of the pandemic's immediate threat to human life, essential work is now widely understood as work deemed necessary to meet the basic needs of human survival and well-being, like food, health, safety, and cleaning. Okay, I'm going to take that phrase and use it for our purposes and say that hymnals are essential. That's how it might sound like a very strong statement to make because um, they're talking about human survival and well-being. But I'm going to take that in a religious way and think about eternal things. So obviously we don't want to get sick, but avoiding sickness and even death isn't actually the most important thing for us. We all know that we will die someday unless God comes for the final judgment before we die. But I'm going to, um, we, we have the hope of the resurrection. So God's gifts are more essential to us than any restaurant or any business. All right. So the first thing I'm going to talk, that's kind of the second of my of my talking to you hymnals first i'm going to talk to you about uh, god's hand in our lives i'm going to talk about my life a little bit because that's the life that i am most familiar with <laughs> so i can so i can tell you some things about it um, i married i have four children and seven grandchildren. Three of the children are married. I'm a grandma. I homeschooled my children. That was a long time ago because my children are in their 20s and 30s now. So I'm probably more like a the age of your grandma. And along with those vocations, I'm also a church musician and a deaconess and an educator. So after my children were mostly grown and gone, I thought I'd go back to school and get a master's in organ. I pl I've played organ all my adult life. I direct the choirs at the children's choir and the adult choir and the handbell choir. And I love doing that and I consider it a great blessing. So I thought, you know, I can do even better if I would go back to school and study it and get a master's in it. And I tried that, it kept not actually working. And it was a little frustrating because, you know, I thought this is a very, this has got to be a God-pleasing thing to do. So why is this not working? And around the same few years while I was sort of dreaming about going back to school and studying organ more, uh, three different times a pastor said to me, well, did you ever consider going to the seminary to become a deaconess? And at first I would say, mm, no, thank you. 
uh, I'm sure that that's a wonderful vocation to have, but I'm already serving the church and this is what I think I have the best skills at and so it's what I want to do. But um, we also know that God speaks to us through our authorities, especially through our pastors. And so after a few times of pastors saying that, I thought, hmm, maybe I should look into this and maybe I should pray about this some more. So guess what? I did go to the seminary and I became a deaconess. So I graduated in 2010. So there was many years between when I got my bachelor's degree and my master's. Getting married and having four children and homeschooling came in between there. One cool thing about going to the seminary is that you often have, meet people from around the world. This happens to be a pastor in the Lutheran Church in Kenya, Isaiah Okay, so was that a coincidence that he and I met? I would say not. A coincidence, you know, is like an accident or it's just fate or serendipity. And sometimes things happen that you think, whoa, what an amazing coincidence. And then maybe five or 10 years later, you look back and you say, oh my goodness, that was amazing. That, like, God must have had that planned. So some of you, it's going to be when you're older, and especially when you're adults, that you'll be able to look back and see what things weren't really coincidences. But I can tell you right now, one thing that's not a coincidence for you is who your parents happen to be. That wasn't just fate, but God, of course, chose those people to be your parents and chose you to be their child. Another thing he does is he puts the right neighbors, it, he puts neighbors in your life for a reason. Neighbors as in the people who live closest to you, right? Okay, so my closest neighbor is my husband. My husband has his doctorate in music and is a music professor at university. Well, that's very handy for me because that means we own the good professional kind of music software on the computer and he's very good at using it. So he's a good teacher for music software. I also happen to have a pastor who has a doctorate in liturgics from University of Notre Dame. So he's a brilliant scholar in liturgy. That was very useful to me in working on hymnals, which, was, which is what I'm going to be telling you about. I've, got, I've gotten to work on hymnals in lots of different countries and languages. Then the third person, Dr. Paul Grimm, he's a seminary professor um, at the seminary in Fort Wayne, and he was in charge of the Lutheran Service Book Hymnal Project. He was like the chairman of that whole project. So he knows more about it than anybody else, and he's very helpful, and he doesn't mind answering questions. So all of those people are, those are things that God directed so that all of those people would be in my life and could help. All right, Kenya. We are going to look at Kenya because Pastor Isaiah Obari is from Kenya and he and I got to know each other and it turns out that his father was the Archbishop of the Lutheran Church in Kenya and because of meeting them, I was asked to help them make a hymnal. Oh, look, I forgot to put the name of the language. Does anybody happen to know what an official language in Kenya is? The language is Swahili. I don't know, I couldn't see if someone was, if, if, if any of you were putting, were, were guessing that. But their language, their official language is Swahili. 
Um, they also have the uh, English as an official language, but not so many people can speak that. So here is what a church, a typical church looks like in the Kenyan church. Um, you notice that the floor is dirt and the benches are just uh, kind of rough wood. It looks kind of dark. That's because there's no electricity. And so the, the um, only light comes through that window. That's sort of a typical church in Kenya. They do have some huge uh, churches which are more modern, uh, but those are the exception. There are only a few large cities in Kenya. Most of the area, most of the country is rural. And so this is kind of what a church looks like. And they didn't have their own hymnal, but there are some churches in Kenya that do have hymnals and sometimes congregation, like maybe one of those mothers, would get a songbook, a hymn book from one of her neighbors, and she'd be very excited because they could use that hymnal in their church. By the way, they also don't have enough pastors. So one pastor has is maybe the pastor of 10 congregations. So on Sunday morning, they usually don't have their pastor there, so they just worship with their hymnal. So they get us this songbook and they learn a few songs out of it and they were very excited to learn to, to uh, be able to sing those songs. So this is called Ibada Takatifu. That's Swahili for divine service. And it's the first official hymnal for the Lutheran Church in Kenya. And I got to be coordinating editor for that. So that was an awesome, project to get to do because of my um, connections with people, the relationships I had with people, and because of being a deaconess and a musician. The uh, Kenyan Lutheran Church has about 100,000 members, so there are 20,000 hymnals, so that there's enough for every, every family to have their own in their, in their home. So that was the Kenyan Hymnal Project and the language was Swahili. Now we're going to move to north of Kenya, to Ethiopia, the evangelical, Ethiopian Evangelical Church, Makana Yesus. How about that language? Anyone know what their language is? Or official language, I should say. They have hundreds of languages. The language is Amharic. Swahili, I thought, was a very tough language found out that it isn't as tough as some languages because Swahili uses the same alphabet that we do, but Amharic does not. Uh, we have 26 letters in our alphabet. Amharic has, I think, 250 fidels to learn. Very tough. Let's talk a little bit about the differences between the churches in Kenya and in Ethiopia. I told you that the Kenyan Lutheran Church has 100,000 members. Okay. For, we should know how many the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has, LCMS. Um, they have, right now we have maybe about 2 million. The Ethiopian Church, Lutheran Church, is the largest Lutheran Church body in the world and the fastest growing. So every time I ask them, the number is grown again, but it's something like 9 million. LCMS, about 2 million. They're about 9 million. And remember that church in Kenya with a few people? And more people would be coming. This is more typical in Ethiopia. Totally full. And um, 
I thought about getting up and, and walking outside and taking a picture outside because if I peeked out the windows, it looked like there were lots more people outside that couldn't get in than there were inside. I didn't do that because uh, if you get up for any reason, you will lose your seat. <laughs> and then you won't be able to sit for the next three hours because the services are long. So they have this wonderful problem of needing to grow, build churches and train pastors very fast. All right, this is what their hymnal, before the one we just made for them, this is what their hymnal looked like. Those funny little things are called fidels, F-I-D-E-L. And you can see that those are hymns because of numbers, 258, 259. Those little numbers are about the only thing that I can make any sense of. I didn't get any, I, I didn't get good at all at reading in Amharic. I could barely say anything. This is what the, the hymns look like in the new hymnal. What's the biggest difference you can see? There are music notes and that's the biggest difference in most of these. In all of these countries where we go to, if they have a songbook, it's only the words. So if nobody happens to know the tune, they're out of luck, right? Also, people forget tunes. And so they, they lose hymns all the time because no one can remember how they went. So this way it preserves the tunes. And we added, we put some hymns in that you all know from LSP. And I'm going to show you what the Amharic sounds like. This has me at the beginning of it. We'll make, we'll see if this works to have the sound. The glorious hymn, At the Lamb's High Feast We Sing, is one that was translated into Amharic for the Ethiopian hymnal, which was published in 2019. This is an example of an ancient text. It was first written in Latin, somewhere between 500 and 800 AD, and then revised, still in Latin, in the 17th century. At the Lamb's High Feast, the Lamb is Jesus. In this hymn, he is also called our victorious King, the victim, the mighty victim, the priest, and our Savior. This hymn is filled with imagery. Our victorious King has washed us in the tide, flowing from his pierced side. He gives his sacred blood for wine and his body for the feast. He has conquered hell's fierce powers, destroyed sin, and opened paradise. No wonder every stanza needs to end in Alleluia. My children's choir loves this hymn. Every year it's one of their favorites, and I have found that children in other parts of the world love it too. The tune Lutherans know for this text fits it so well, starting with that melodic leap at the very beginning. The first phrase sounds so triumphant, it's impossible not to sing it enthusiastically. Listen to Sauron and Ruth, two sisters who live in Ethiopia, sing a couple of stanzas with their father accompanying on the guitar. The language is Amharic, and this is what the hymn looks like in their hymnal.
right. So that was two hymnal projects that I was a coordinating editor for in Africa. So one of the things we do when we're working on hymnal projects is to have pastors conferences to teach them about hymnals and liturgy. We have a wonderful gift in the LCMS with the Lutheran service book. I use it as the example of like the best hymnal uh, that has everything in it. And one of the things that I teach them is along with the hymns, you should have the small catechism in it and the orders of service and psalms and prayers, all those things. All right, let's hear what an Indonesian, what a hymn sounds like in Indonesian. This is a family, father, mother, two children, two, two daughters again, and they're going to sing a hymn. Oh, I don't okay. Martin Luther's hymn, Triune God, Be Thou Our Stay, is often used for the festival of the Holy Trinity. It can be used as a one stanza hymn beginning with the words Triune God, or a three stanza hymn with the Trinitarian address, God the Father, Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit. This hymn declares that all a Christian's life is put before God so that we are cleansed from sin, strengthened in faith, and have the hope of life eternal. We ask God to uphold our faith and trust only him. It is by putting on his armor that we withstand the devil's cunning attacks. Amen, amen, let it be so. One of the goals with hymnal projects is to encourage the use of the hymnal in homes for family devotions as well as personal use. Listen in as a family from Indonesia sings this hymn in Bahasa Indonesia, the language of Indonesia. going to talk a little bit about why hymnals are so important, why, so important that I would say they are essential. And to do that, I'm going to, we're going to use two words that we need to know, know a definition for. The words are culture and liturgy. Um, because our church, we could say it has the culture of the liturgy. We're a liturgical church. The word culture uh, the root of the root meaning of the word culture is also shared by the word agriculture. Agriculture doesn't really seem to have anything to do with church or with liturgy, but it's it's talking about soil that's been tilled and farming. Okay, so soil that it's been tilled, 
So and by, by extension, we could say that culture in life is a set of traits that have been plowed into a group's way of life. It's like in the, in the, on the farm, a, a plow or a tiller comes through and puts those, those, um, cur those, it digs into the ground. And in our culture, there are things like language and material objects and rituals and institutions and art and customs and beliefs. All of those things get plowed into us and they become a part of us. Um, so it's how, it's how, um, you tell one group of people from another, the Indonesians have a different culture than we do, and the Ethiopians have a different culture. All right, the word liturgy, that's a familiar word to, to you, and it, it's a very general kind of word. It can have lots of different meanings. Sometimes we just say the liturgy and we mean the order of service that starts on some page in the hymnal. The, I'm going to use a really broad definition the structure or ritual through which we receive the sure and certain gifts of God. Or another way to say that is the structure by which God's word is delivered to his people. You can see the picture of Holy Communion. That's how God gives us his gifts, right? The whole point of the liturgy is the gospel. It's God's gifts and how they come to us. In the structure of the liturgy, there's a rhythm, and the rhythm is always from God to us and then back to him. He gives us his gifts, and together we receive them, and then we praise him for it. This comes from the introduction from our last hymnal, Lutheran Worship. The rhythm, and you can see those words there. The rhythm of our worship is from him to us and then back to, from us back to him. He gives the gifts. We receive them. So it's never about us deciding to do something for God. It's always God doing something for us and us being thankful. And so our life is lived liturgically. You recognize this because it's got the culture of the liturgy. So even though it looks a lot different than how we worship, you recognize it. The language and the tunes are different. Uh, here, the robes look pretty much the same, except for the bishop, and we don't use those tall hats. But you can tell that this is the liturgy. It gives us a rhythm and a pattern for life. So you can tell what's happening, even though you've never been in this place. This one happens to be in Indonesia, and um, the people look different. But you can tell that there's a pastor, and he's giving the people Holy Communion. So the liturgy, the culture of the liturgy, it transcends all of our earthly cultures. We live in different cultures. We live in an American culture, um, and we also live in the church's culture. And the church's culture, the liturgy, that belongs to the church. And it wasn't just formed by one man, but it was formed by men over many years. And, um, as, and like it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So we have these traditions that um, hold us together. A hymnal helps 
with those traditions. It facilitates our ability to live in Christ and receive his gifts because it gives us that structure of the divine service or matins or vespers, gives us all sorts of rights and resources. And in the mission field, that's especially important because uh, they need to have a way to receive God's gifts. And if we give them the liturgy or that order of service, that's a way that that's the pastor can then use that to give the people God's gifts. The liturgy looks different than anything else we do in life. It's more formal. We do that on purpose because that gives it more reverence and it unites us. It unites us all around the world. It also unites us from over the centuries. But in, if you ever get a chance to travel to other countries, you might also discover like I did that even if you can't understand a single word they're saying, you can follow along in the divine service because of the liturgy, because of that order of service. The culture of the liturgy is one reason that we don't put much importance on putting contemporary music in, the, in these hymnals because contemporary music changes very quickly. And it also is more tied to one culture. It might be tied like to the Indian culture. This picture is in the seminary in India. But if we use the historic hymns that Christians have been using for hundreds of years, then it helps unite us. The culture of the liturgy is a sweet gift to us because God has promised to give us his gifts in Holy Communion, in absolution, in the preaching, in baptism. Um, and so we can be sure when we go to church and we're part of that culture that we are getting God's gifts. So that's why I say hymnals are essential to us. They give us the structure and the order so that we can receive the gifts of God. It's not like we can't be Christians without a hymnal, but hymnals are a tremendous blessing and they're a very profound thing for us. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.